perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, a king who learned really slowly with an ego that bruised like a peach. He was a warlord pagan king from Babylon who besieged Jerusalem. He decided to teach some of the intelligent young nobles from Jerusalem all they would need to know to better serve him. Daniel was one of them. About two years into his reign, Nebuchadnezzar began having disturbing dreams, visions which he didn't understand. As any good pagan would, he summoned his astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, and enchanters to help him. But rather than telling them what his dream was, he told them to tell him what his dream was. Of course they couldn't, so he gave an order to have all the wise men killed. Daniel managed to stall long enough to pray, and had a vision from God of the meaning of the dream. Explaining to the king that this was not a skill Daniel had, but only something God could do, he told the king the dream. And he interpreted it, telling Nebuchadnezzar that the dream was an image of the kings to come after him. Overjoyed by this, Nebuchadnezzar fell to his face and proclaimed that Daniel's God was truly the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Of course, this doesn't stop Nebuchadnezzar from practicing his pagan religion, but it's a start in the right direction, right? He gives Daniel a big promotion to rule over the province of Babylon. But Daniel finds a way to stay in the king's court by promoting three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be administrators of Babylon. In no time, Nebuchadnezzar dismisses the whole Daniel's God is the real God stuff and decides to build a 90-foot gold statue, which he forces everyone to worship if they hear the slightest musical sound. If they don't, they'll be thrown into a furnace and burned alive. An astrologer, still peeved about the whole dream business, tells Nebuchadnezzar that the three Israelites overseeing Babylon don't pray to the statue. When confronted, they're reminded if they don't, they'll be thrown into the furnace. And all three agree that burned or not, they're not going to worship Nebuchadnezzar's gods, let alone a gold brick. Furious, he orders the furnace to be turned up as hot as possible and has all three men bound and thrown in. But rather than burning, they're perfectly safe. The ropes that bound them are now ashes. Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely amazed. He tells the men to come out of the furnace since they are servants of the Most High God. This doesn't stop Nebuchadnezzar from practicing his pagan religion either. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, this time about a tree. Daniel tells him, begrudgingly, that the tree is him and he's about to go insane and get kicked out of his kingdom to go live on grass with wild donkeys. You'll have it rough for a while, he says, but you'll eventually come back to power, lessons learned. Twelve months later, just long enough to put a dream like that out of your mind, Nebuchadnezzar is admiring his palace. Look at this great palace, which I built with my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, he says. So with that, a messenger from God comes down and Nebuchadnezzar goes stark raving mad, gets driven out of his domain, and lives in a field eating grass. Eventually, he looks up to heaven and acknowledges that God, indeed, gives control to kingdoms to whomever he chooses. Now, uninsane, he's brought back to his palace and reseated on his throne. So now he's willing to praise God. Because the dreams, seeing the future, just missed their mark. And having everything, even your own mind, taken away seemed to finally hit home. The moral of the story? Hello. Ah, there we go. 
Good morning and welcome. I'm going to do this again all over again. Good morning and welcome to Connect City Church. My name is Liguri and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Connect City Church and I am so honored and excited to get to stand up here and teach before you guys this morning. Uh, if you don't know, we've been through a lot of recent changes here. If you're not new here, I think most of the faces I recognize, but if you're not new here, we've been going through some stuff and we are continuing to go through some stuff over the next four or five weeks. Um, if you didn't know, Josh, our lead pastor, is now in Montana teaching buffalo and cow or whatever is in Montana. I don't really know. Um, I don't know anything about Montana. I'm assuming that it's completely frozen and, and no one lives there. So I'm assuming he's like Nebuchadnezzar and is just in a field eating grass somewhere. Um, but uh, he's in Montana teaching, and so uh, I get the opportunity to teach this morning. But we're also in the midst of a move. In four weeks from today, we will be out of this building, no longer in this building. Do not come here after four weeks or you will be the only one here. And, uh, and we will be in two new cities. We will be back in Somerville, back in Rome, and we'll be proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We will be telling people about the good news of Jesus directly in the middle of both of those cities. And it's an exciting, exciting time. And you got to hear last week from Abraham, who got to tell you a little bit about the Great Commission and what our mission is going to be as we go into those two cities, which is to make disciples. And he challenged all of us to go forth after Sunday and actually step out of our comfort zone and begin to do that process of making disciples, begin to start teaching people and start proclaiming Jesus, not in four weeks when we get into the cities, not in six, eight, ten weeks when we get the church up and going and ready to go, but now. And I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know, I struggle with that a little bit. I don't know how many of you actually, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm going to raise my hand, I don't expect anybody else to, but I am one of the people, raise my hand, that did not go out of here on Sunday and proclaim the gospel to strangers. I don't know how many of you did, but I'm one of the ones that didn't do that. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and I can make a bunch of excuses, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that I was one of the people that didn't get to do that. And, uh, and so that, that kind of got me thinking about this message and where we're going today. And, and the question popped up into my mind of what is it that we want to be as we begin to rebuild our church? Because we are. We're in a rebuilding phase. We are in a period of time where we are not only rebuilding structurally, like if you don't know, uh, Josh and Jared have been telling you guys about how the building is going and how things are getting with permits and all this other stuff. If you have any questions about that, you can go find them. Don't ask me because I have no idea. But um, we're in a physical rebuilding stage. But at the same time, we're honestly rebuilding ourselves as a church. Um, whenever we're going into a new place, we're not only physically moving into a new place, but we're going into a new culture. I mean, if, if you don't know, if you've never been to both Somerville and Rome, they're two very different places, and two very different places from here where we're all getting to be together. And so we're not only reestablishing ourselves and rebuilding ourselves physically as a church, but we're doing the same thing spiritually, and we're doing the same thing as, as a group of people. We're trying to figure out and build ourselves on what the vision is that we're going to have from this point on. And so I got to asking myself that question, who is it that we want to be and how do we get there? Who is it that we want to be? Because I think we all ask ourselves that question at some point. We all ask ourselves, who is it that I really, who, let me rephrase that question, who do I really want to be? Who is it that I see myself as? Who is it that I really want to be? And so we should be asking ourselves that same question as a church. And, uh, and everybody knows our vision, it's, it's, if you didn't see it right as you come into the sanctuary up there, our vision as a church, the vision that God gave us six years ago, the same vision that we have now, is to make it simple for people to connect to God and to each other. And so how do we do that? 
Well, we're going to be in the story, uh, we're going to actually be in the book of Daniel this morning, if you can't tell by the poster behind me. And, uh, and we're going to actually look at Daniel 4. And you got to hear a little bit about some of this, but Daniel 1 through 4 is kind of the story of two people, King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And Daniel is the protagonist in the story. Daniel is the hero. Daniel is the one who, if we're honest with ourselves, we, if we're plugging ourselves into a story, if I'm reading a book, if I'm reading, I don't know, Harry Potter, then when I read that book, I see myself as that character. We all do. When we're, any kind of book you're reading, whether it's a Western or a, a, I don't know, like one of those teenage vampire, some odd books that people seem to read for some reason, um, you see yourself as the main character. You don't see yourself as the, the antagonist. You don't see yourself as the bad guy. You don't see yourself as one of the side characters. At least I hope you don't. You don't see yourself as anybody else in that book other than the main character. So that's kind of what we do in the Bible. And, and Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's right, and other times that's not necessarily the case. But in this case, Daniel is the hero. Daniel is the, the righteous one. Daniel is the, uh, the honorable one. He's the humble one. Like when we see this story, there's so many good characters that we can pull out of Daniel and so many good characteristics that we can pull out of Daniel and see who we should be as a person. And then we see King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the antagonist of the story, and we can all kind of get this. He's the super prideful guy who, um, as, as you got to hear in the video a second ago, he's the guy that got this vision from God, this dream from God, that there's this huge statue, and the statue is broken up into a bunch of different pieces. It's, you've got gold on the top, and as you go down, there's like different metals that kind of go down in value. But as you go down the statue, they get stronger, so they're stronger metals. So each type of metal represented a different part of his kingdom. The top being like the nations that were really prosperous. And when you get near the bottom, the iron ones, which have really good defense. And then at the very bottom, you get clay and iron, which is kind of meant that this is kind of a broken nation and nobody really understands like what's going on. They're all confused and running around like, I don't know what's going on. And uh, they're the ones that this kind of, this huge statue is on the earth. And then you see this comet come out of the sky in this vision and blow the entire thing up, just, I mean, destroys it. This comet comes from the heavens, blows it all up, and then that's the end of his dream. And if, if you can't imagine, if you knew this was a vision from God, you would have to be terrified. I mean, a giant statue of yourself gets annihilated by a comet. There's only two outcomes to that. Either something bad's going to happen to you in some, like, metaphorical kind of, like, prophecy-type thing, or you're going to get hit by a comet. Like, I don't know how the two outcomes of that are a good thing, but he is terrified. And so he asked a bunch of people to come and not only to relay what this dream is supposed to mean, but at the same time, he comes and asks, not only do you have to tell me what the dream means, but you have to tell me the dream. I'm not going to tell it to you. Like, you just have to know what the dream is and then tell it to me. And so all these people are like, we can't do that. We can't read your mind. And so Daniel comes up and he's like, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Let me tell you what it means. This is God's kingdom is the comet. All your kingdoms are made up in this statue, and God's kingdom is going to annihilate your kingdoms. So you should probably worship him. Kind of the gist, I'm paraphrasing. That, that, those weren't Daniel's actual words, um, I hope, anyway. But uh, he, he tells this story, and then, of course, in, the, the, in there, what's the next thing that King Nebuchadnezzar does? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he builds a giant golden statue of himself. I don't know about you, but if somebody told me that... A giant statue of you is going to get hit by the comets, and that's God telling you that I'm going to destroy your kingdoms, and then I go build a giant golden statue of myself. I don't know if you can get a bigger middle finger to God. Like, I don't know. I mean, there's just not a possibility of saying, like, anything more prideful or arrogant or conceited than saying, hey, God, I heard you. I know you're saying that you're going to destroy me. I know you told me in this big vision where 
there's this giant statue, but I'm just going to go ahead and build a giant golden statue and expect everybody to worship me. And so that's where we're at. We have these two characters. And if we're honest with ourselves, we put ourselves into this book as Daniel. But let me read you a passage out of Daniel 4. And if, if, you're, if you have a Bible with you, um, you can go ahead and we're going to be in Daniel 4 for most of the day. And uh, please skip the first three. Don't, don't go ahead and read the first three verses. Skip to verse 4 because that's where we're going to be today. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and was prospering in my palace. See, if we ask ourselves who we want to be and we're sticking ourselves into the story, if we're honest with ourselves, this is the picture of where we want to be. It's not the picture of Daniel, who's a vegetarian, who, I'm sorry to all vegetarians out there, but that's horrible. Um, It's torturing yourself. You eat meat. Thank you. Um, If he's a vegetarian, he's super humble, he's living in service to another person, and he is not really at the place he wants to be. He's seen his friends thrown into a furnace. He has seen his entire nation blown up and destroyed, pretty much. And that's not the picture of where we want to be. This is the picture of where we want to be. Comfortable and successful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that is our picture of where we want to be. If, we, if you laid out the American dream, it would be comfort and success. That would be the two things that make up the American dream. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it affects us kind of similarly, if we're honest, to King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, we relate a lot more to King Nebuchadnezzar in this story than we do to Daniel. And I struggle with this. And I'll be honest, as I'm preparing for this message, the biggest thing that I had to fight myself against is to say, I really want to look good on stage. Not, not, I mean, yeah, I want to look good on stage, but not like that. Like, I want to... I want to sound good on stage. I don't want like my words to get jumbled up. I don't want to have some thoughts that come out that seem really dumb or stupid. Like I want to look okay on stage. I don't want to be that pastor that you see up there that's just mumbling his words or doesn't have his thoughts together. And, and so as I'm preparing, I get so stressed out if something doesn't go right. And I, on Tuesday, I'm, I have a couple of friends who I, I actually called in this situation. On Tuesday, I had that horrible thing happen that IT warns you about all the time when you're saving your documents that my computer crashed and deleted everything I'd worked on for like five days. And I don't know if you've ever been in that, but like that, it, you, you might as well have just given me that bad Chinese food that makes you like need to go to the bathroom about 20 minutes later because my stomach was like, oh, like I, I uh, it was horrible. And I was so stressed out that I literally took the pages of notes that I had typed up and these were notes that I was not following. This was like my pre-notes to the stuff that I had actually written down and lost. And I just ripped them up. I was like, I, I, this is horrible. I can't do this. And we all get that. And it's not something that like, we, we struggle with as like a pride thing, really. It's, it's honestly like we want to be viewed a certain way. We want to be viewed a certain way by other people. And if we're honest, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. We struggle just like King Nebuchadnezzar struggled, it's just we don't view it the same way. If we think about it, like in our jobs, we, wanna, we want people to think that we're good at our jobs. In our relationships, we want people to think that we have the perfect relationship. Regardless of if you were arguing on the way here to church this morning, you walked in the doors holding hands saying, I love you very much. Please let everybody know that we did not argue on the way here. Like, if you're honest, if you've been in a relationship longer than about 15 minutes, you've had that conversation on the way to church. Like, Guys, just be honest for a second. Like, we've had that conversation. 
If we are struggling with something, we don't want anybody else to know. We don't want anybody else to know what we're struggling with. Because then it would break the illusion of who we are to other people. And for King Nebuchadnezzar, we see him in this book as this brutal person who conquered kingdoms and destroyed peoples for not worshiping him. That he was conceded to the fullest extent of a 90-foot golden statue. He demanded respect and worship from other people. But if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing. We really see ourselves as people who demand to be respected. If somebody disrespects us, it hits us in a really, really, really deep place where, we, where that kind of King Nebuchadnezzar type person comes out and it's like, you will not disrespect me. You won't do it. I mean, we, as guys, I know at some points, like, especially in college or like high school, like, that's when you bring fists out and you're like, okay, I'm ready. Let, let's go now. Like, you are not disrespecting me. Or if, like, they disrespect somebody around you, like, you must have, like, a terrible relationship with that person. Like, that's, oh, God, you just talked about my wife, let's go. You just talked about my girlfriend, let's go. We do the same thing with our kids. We don't want people to think that we, I don't know, yell at our kids. If anybody has kids, they should be laughing at that. I'm sorry, like, (laughs) I was at a birthday party for my son this weekend, and I felt like yelling at him at certain points in that day. Like, there are times when we really just can't stand it, but we, we don't want people to see it. So we're a lot more like King Nebuchadnezzar than we think because there's two outcomes for this idea. There's two outcomes for us as we work to be where we want to be. As we ask ourselves, who do we want to be? There's two outcomes for us getting there. It's either one, we get really good at whatever it is we're wanting to do or be. And we get so good at it that we become a little arrogant at it. Or we become prideful. And then we get to that mega, like, golden statue side of, people should respect me for what I do. I don't know about you, but I've been there. Like, I felt so disrespected when there were times when, like, I was doing my job really well, and I was doing the best I could, and I was doing it perfectly. And somebody didn't respect me in that, and it just, ugh, it just turned something inside me. Or there's the other side of it, where we might not be the best at what it is we're doing, so we want people to see that we're the best at it, even if we're not. This is kind of the story, I'm I'm not going to preach about Facebook, that's not what I'm doing, but that's our story about Facebook. Like, let me put up this image of myself, this is perfect image of who I am, like, the pictures of us where we're like, it's just our faces and like you had used clear cell like 14 times the night before and made sure that like you looked perfect in that picture before you took it. Or that picture of your whole family like together and smiling and happy and then like six seconds before that you were like having to spank your kid because they wouldn't sit still. Like that, that's our picture of it. We, we want to look like we have everything figured out, but we might not. And so we become hypocritical. See, that's, the, that's two sides of the same thing. We, we want people to see us as being good at what we want to be, at, at being the thing we want to be. So much so that we end up in one of these two camps. And see, Daniel, Daniel tries to warn King Nebuchadnezzar about this. He tries to warn King Nebuchadnezzar, like, this is not a good road for you to be going down. This is not a good road. In Daniel 4.27, if you can pull that up real quick, 
He says, there, Daniel's telling King Nebuchadnezzar, like after he's told him the vision and after he's explained this new vision, um, which they explained in the trailer about the tree and everything, like God is going to make you understand that he is all-powerful and he is the king and the authority. And so Daniel's trying to tell him, and he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that they may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity. And we get that, because we, we kind of feel that all the time, don't you? Like, whenever you are in those little areas, and we all do it, whenever we're in those areas, we're being slightly hypocritical. Like, when you're in an argument with your wife, but you know you're in the wrong, and you can't help but keep arguing. Or, like, when you are putting that stuff up on Facebook, and you just feel dirty, like, God, this is not really me. I don't want people to see. Like, we feel that. And the same thing when we're being arrogant or conceited. Like, we know when that's happening because we can hear God in our heads like, ah, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And Daniel's telling him, you are going to suffer for this. Something is going to happen, and you are going to suffer for the pride that you have. You are going to suffer for the things that have happened to this, and I don't want this to happen to you. And he goes on in, in, uh, in Daniel 4.29. King Nebuchadnezzar kind of responds to this vision or whatever of him telling him, like, you are going to suffer for your pride. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar's response. At the end of 12 months, so he's had 12 months to, to think about this vision, and all the visions have already come true. Like, he's had two other visions that have already come true, and he's got this vision right here in his face, and he knows it's probably going to come true and he's had 12 months to think about it, and he was walking on the roof in the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's basically saying, Did I not build this? Did I not do this? Am I not the one who had the sweat and toil to conquer all these nations? And I'm not the one who put all these people together underneath me who could keep my power in check? Am I not the one that people fear and worship on a daily basis? So why should I listen? If we're really honest with ourselves, like, that's us. A lot of the time, that's us. When we ask ourselves, who do we want to be? And then we get this picture of like, well, I really just want to be comfortable. Or I really want to be successful. We will do almost anything to get there. Almost anything. Now, our different people have different levels of what that almost kind of line is, but we will do almost anything. We will step on someone's back. We will, do, we will go around someone who's in need. We will do whatever we can to get to where we want to be. And then when we get to the end of the road, we ask ourselves, like, am I not the one who worked like 50, 60 hours a day? To get to this position? Am I not the one who suffered through the first like terrible twos like of this like child? Should I not be the one that gets to like say, you stop it? Am I not the one who worked and worked and worked and worked in this relationship? Should I not be able to just say, look, you need to listen? We do this all the time. Did I not build this? Did I not do this on my, with my own hands? If we're honest as a church, this is what scares us about church. If you were in church 
like for a long time like I was, and then you kind of left the church for a little while like I did. This is the idea that scares you so much because you see those two types of churches. You see the ones that are arrogant and conceited, that, that think they have it all together, that think they have every single commandment and testament God has laid out and say, God, we, we've got this. We do this. Our church is built. We've got people tithing. We've got like 100,000 people coming to our church. We have this figured out. And then we get the other side where we see those churches who say that, who those words come out of our mouth, and yet we can see the hypocrisy behind it. We can see, I mean, and if we're being honest, and I'm not trashing anyone because this is just fact, we've seen pastors who have stood on the stage and said, guys, you cannot do this anymore, who the very next day we saw out doing that very thing. And it's so hard for us as a church to figure out where we want to be when these are our two pictures of what we're supposed to be following and what we're supposed to be doing. It's hard. So what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? If this is our picture not only of ourselves and the church, if this is who we relate to in this story, then what happened to him? Well, he went insane. So, all right, that's our. I'm going to pray and we can leave. Um, everyone is going to go insane. You will live with cows for seven years. Just, he went insane. He uh, had 12 months to figure this out, said, nope, I built this with my own hands. God, whatever you've got, bring it on. And then God said, oh, okay, well, you're going to go insane. And he was that guy that you've seen who is eating grass in the field, like thinks he's a goat, insane. Like insane, <laughs> crazy, for seven years. For seven years, he lived with animals, Think about this. Like, this would be like, and I'm not pointing her out, but this would be like the Queen of England saying, God, nope, I washed my hands of this. And then the next thing you know, like, there's that TMZ story where she's just out in a field, like, with a loincloth on, like, eating grass in a field. Like, we, we, we think it's funny, but that's really what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. For seven years, he lived in a field eating grass. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is not a picture of a king that we can think of. But can you think about it from King Nebuchadnezzar's position? King of all. I mean, he was the ruler of Babylon. Nations bowed down to him. He had a 90-foot golden statue that people worshipped on a daily basis. And the next thing you know, he's in a field. Can't keep track of his own mind can't figure out what he's supposed to be doing on a daily basis. He was completely broken. The, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the heartache that somebody in that humongous of a position would feel by being that low and disgraced. So what did he do? What happened? How's his reaction after coming back to sanity, after getting his mind back? What would your reaction be in that case? Because we've all been there. We've all hit those broken roads, that state of being completely destroyed in something happening. And if you haven't been there, you will be at some point. Because we all get there at some point. In Daniel 
Nebuchadnezzar says this, and, and if you don't know, Daniel 4, the book of Daniel is actually a memoir written by Daniel, but Daniel 4 is a little weird. It's actually a letter written by King Nebuchadnezzar that's stuck into this memoir, that's stuck into this book. And so, I mean, if you think about it, that's a little bit odd. This king who had tried to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he stuck a letter in with Daniel's memoirs for the people that this book would go to. Obviously the Jewish people, and obviously the people that he had destroyed and broken for so long, and he sticks a letter in for them to read. And this is what he says. It's verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted for nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So he's gotten back everything he's lost. But this last sentence is so profound. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Think about those words, like somebody who's in such brokenness and despair, somebody who has been completely made low, who everything that he had put his purpose and power and might and reason and plans, everything that he had found value in was not only completely taken away, but he was debased as a human being. I mean, think about for you, like if, if you were a person and you had all these people that admired and, I mean, honestly worshipped you. So in some sense, some loved you, some just respected you enough that they weren't going to say anything. And you were crawling around in the field eating grass. How humiliating would it be to write a letter and say, I was wrong? The first thing that I would want to do is get back and be like, okay, all you people who were laughing at me in the field, y'all are all dead. Like the furnace just... Let's wrap them all up, throw them in the furnace, and, uh, and get this thing back to rolling. And no, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. All, including himself, are nothing compared to the might and majesty of God. See, the, the weird thing about brokenness, the weird thing about us getting to that place where all of our pride and all of our love for everything that we have, all of our value in life, everything that's, that we hold dear, when that is shattered, the weird thing about this is that is the moment that God shows up. God shows up in our brokenness. He finds us when we are at our lowest and shows us that there is something better to follow. There's a better path, there's a better plan there's more honor in his path than in ours. God uses our brokenness to show us our need for him. Because if we're honest, this all 
an issue of who we rely on. This pride thing, whether we're arrogant or conceited or whether we're on the other side and we're hypocritical, everything's about what we rely on. And if we're honest, we rely on ourselves for everything. We are so self-reliant. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can be a good person. I can fix my addiction. I can fix my marriage. I can fix my children. I can fix that person. I can help them. I can be the one I, I, I. I can be the one who goes up to that person and shows them who Jesus is because that's how good I am. This is our story, not only as people, but as a church. For so many years, not just, like, I'm not pointing anyone out in this church, and I'm not saying our church in general, I'm talking about Big C Church, like the church overall. We, for so long, looked at this battle, and all the way back into the Jewish times, when we see in the Old Testament stories, since the beginning, since the fall of man, pride has been the one thing that we just can't fix. Pride has been the one thing that just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and destroying our lives. Because we get to this such of a high level and God says, no, 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 no. And breaks us. And it's in those broken times. If we look at the path of the Old Testament, it's in those broken times that we call out, God, we need you. King Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect representation of us. See, we want to be Daniel in the story, but if we're honest, King Nebuchadnezzar is us. Every single one of us relates to him. And he might be the extreme of where we're at, but every one of us can see what it would feel like in that brokenness. So what do we do? How do we actually become what we want to be as a church? How do we become the thing that we have set out as a vision of making it simple for people to connect to God and each other. What is it that we're supposed to do? Paul, um, in the New Testament, is, uh, for those of you, I mean, we've talked about Paul so much, but Paul was a perfect New Testament version of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you had to wrap up every issue that King Nebuchadnezzar has and struggles with, Paul struggles with the exact same thing. Before he became a Christian, he demanded that people worship his version of God. So much so that when Christians started to talk about Jesus and talk about the amazing, amazing effect that Jesus can have on our lives, Paul hated it. Everything that he was about was being questioned and targeted. Everything that he had built up, this, this path that he had laid out for his life of being this all-knowing teacher, an all-knowing church pastor, basically, had been questioned by this guy who said, I am the way and truth and the life. Not the God that I worship, but this other guy, this, this, this guy who just happened to show up when he was 33 and started walking around talking about God's kingdom, is saying that his way is the right way, and I've spent my whole life building up to this place where I could say, no, 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 this is our God, and all we have to do is work, 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 and we will get there. Because everything Paul had done was work to this point. And he was so mad that someone would question that, that he was willing to do the same thing as King Nebuchadnezzar. 
throw people in the furnace. In his version, it was stoning them. Throwing giant rocks at their head until they died. They're so similar. And Paul has this beautiful section of 2 Corinthians where he's talking to the Corinthian church and they're struggling with this issue too as a church. They're in a rebuilding phase. They're trying to figure out how do we kind of get rid of all these like false teachers and how do we go back to that main vision of making it simple for people to connect to God and each other and how do we get to a point where we can say we're doing it. And Paul sends up this letter and he says something. It's in, we're actually going to be in 2 Corinthians 12. And he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know man in Christ. I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Now, let me explain this really quick. If you don't know the story of Paul, he met Jesus face to face. Jesus had already died. Jesus had risen again. He had risen up to heaven. And then he met Jesus on the road as he was actually going to persecute Christians. And Face to face, he met him, so much so that it struck him blind. Like the glory of Jesus showing up and just saying, hey, it's me, worship me, just struck him blind. That's the power that he had. And Paul is, he's talking in the third person here, but he's saying 14 years ago, I was that guy. I was that guy that was struggling with this just as much as you are, struggling with this idea of how do we get to where we want to be. And then Jesus showed up. And not only did Jesus show up, he says here, as we go on, whether in the body or out of body, I do not know. So he's basically saying, like, I don't even know what happened just now. Like, I don't know whether I died and went to heaven. I don't know whether I just had this weird out-of-body experience. I don't know if I was having a dream or a vision. But this is what happened to me. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my behalf I will not boast. So he's basically saying, I got caught up and I saw this vision of heaven and I heard things you could not imagine. I heard the voice of Jesus talking into my ear. We've all kind of heard those stories of people kind of passing away for like five minutes and they hear the voice of Jesus and they can't even explain what's going on. It's that majestic and, and amazing. And Paul's saying, I was this guy who was completely broken by Jesus, by seeing him. And then I got to hear his voice. And he says something pretty amazing for us. And it helps us answer the question of what is it that I want to be and where are we going as a church? He says, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Though I should wish to boast, though me hearing the voice of Jesus is something I could definitely say, dude, I'm, I'm so much better than you. I actually, Jesus came down and talked to me. He let me hear his voice. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of surprising greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So he's basically saying here, like, I had the opportunity to be made so high. I had the opportunity to be so, to be pictured this vision of God's church. I had the opportunity 
to be it. Everything I've ever wanted to be. To be seen by God as this amazing person who is worthy of being his disciple. And he says, God instead chose to give me brokenness. Instead of him allowing me to become conceited and thinking that I'm better than I am, he gave me a thorn in my side. He actually had a physical ailment that was holding him back. And he allowed Satan's messengers, he allowed people to belittle him and critique him. And always, always through the entire journey that he has through Acts and, and through all the pretty much two-thirds of the New Testament that he writes, people constantly are trying to kill him or belittle him or show him that he is nothing. And he said, instead of being the guy who boasts in that other guy, the good one, the one of the image that I want to be, I'm going to be the guy that boasts in my weaknesses. I'm going to be the guy that boasts, that acknowledges all of the brokenness and thanks God for that. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us. Why would we want to do that? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, verse 8, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you pull that slide up, Jeremy? He's saying here that my weakness is not the thing that holds me back. He's saying, Jesus, Jesus. This is a red-letter passage from the, mess, from the um, Bible. He's saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, the power I have in that grace, the power that I have to save you and make you into a new person is made perfect when you are the weakest. Jesus' grace is made perfect in your weakness. When we are weakest, we are able to show His grace so much more profoundly than we could if we were showing people what it is that we're good at. If we're showing people what it is that we do so well. If we are so good at being a Christian. If we're so good in our job. If we are so good at doing the things that God asks us to do. And He's saying here that it's when... Grace is made perfect. My grace is made perfect when you are at your weakest, when you are the most broken. That's not to say that his grace isn't powerful without that. It's saying people can see my grace so much better when you don't act like you don't need it. I don't know about you, but that's so much more beautiful of a picture of the church than the one we try to pursue and push and become on a day-to-day basis. It's so much more beautiful to think this is a church that is broken and messy and messed up, that struggles to answer the questions that God has given, that struggles to do the thing that God's asked us to do. But they do it anyway. I don't know about you, but that's so much different of a picture of the church than I've experienced in my life. 
I mean, we get some of it here, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing our church at all. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can get so much better. If I come back to that question that Abraham asked us last week, if we were to walk out of this church and challenge ourselves to make Jesus' grace known, if we had an unlimited supply of money, this was the illustration that Abraham used last week, if we had an unlimited supply of money and we could just hand it out to whoever we want and we'd never run low, then we would hand it out to everybody. Why not do the same thing with grace? Well, it's because we think we have a better way. We think that me showing how good I am at being a Christian, how good I am about doing the commandments that God's given me, we feel so much more comfort and ease and success when we see how well we are doing in it. Instead of looking back and saying, what helps me relate to those people who are in brokenness? There's a, um, there's a theologian who, uh, his name's Charles Spurgeon. He's a huge theologian. Church pastors love to quote him on a daily basis. And I was listening to, uh, honestly, listening to a sermon series about what the church should be and how it should be pictured And uh, he read this quote, and I want to read this to you guys because I love this quote. It says, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you haven't. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And in the moment I did join it, if I found one that was perfect, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect church after I became a member of it. Think about that idea. Like, if, if we are a church that's displaying how well we do things, if we're a church that's displaying how well we get this and we work it out and we do it on a daily basis, who wants to be a part of that? Because in the midst of my brokenness and my struggle, it is so hard to walk in somewhere and feel like you're a part of that thing if nobody else struggles with it. He says, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it's the dearest place on earth to us. And all who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and the testimony of the church would be lost to the world. As I've already said this, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need or our own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. Who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can to derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold of Christ's sheep. It is the home of Christ's family. If we ask ourselves, what kind of church do we want to be? As we begin to rebuild in these cities, as we begin to go into Somerville and Rome and declare God's news, as we ask ourselves, who is it we want to be as a church? If you are a follower of Christ, that answer to that question should be, I want to be somebody who declares my brokenness and declares the perfect grace of God. 
I'm somebody that when I walk up to somebody on a Sunday morning and begin to meet them, that the first thing out of my mouth wouldn't be, hey, I've got this all together. Come follow me. Be, I'm struggling with this too. Let's work on this together. Let's help each other in our brokenness. Let's figure out a way to do this thing together that best represents God. That we can open our doors up to people and say, look, I know you've messed up. I've messed up. All God asks for us is to follow Him. And when we do, we can figure this out together. We can only affect the people that we open ourselves up to. One of the best pieces of advice anybody ever gave me at this church was, was actually Drew, and I'm not pumping him up. I'm just, he just happened to be the one that told me this. He, we were talking about small groups, and somebody asked him how he, he does such a good job at, like, getting people to come into his small groups and helping like to be a part of the small groups. And he said something that was really honestly, like I don't even know if he remembers saying this to me, but he said something that was so profound to me that I've remembered it ever since. He said, all I do when I talk to somebody is just share something personal that's happened to me. You know how hard that is to walk up to somebody in a moment and share with them your brokenness? how you've messed up or how you've struggled with that or how you've had to figure that out with them, how hard that is. But how beautiful a picture of the church that is for us to say, I am so messed up and I will walk with you in it. If you're not a follower of Christ, I don't know about you, but that is what I waited on for so long was to find a place who said that. We can't help you get saved. I can't tell you how to follow Christ in the correct way. I can't tell you to, how to be a perfect Christian from point A to point B. All I can tell you is that if you're at that place where God is doing just like King Nebuchadnezzar, where Daniel's coming to him and saying, you have to fix this. You cannot keep walking in this pride. If you're at that point, if you feel God saying that to you, all I can say is that we will be here to help you follow him. We will be here to help you walk with him on a daily basis. We will be here that when you feel the most broken, we will be here to help you pick you up. Because that's what the church is supposed to be.